I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Parallax Views listeners, as most of you know, each and every edition of Parallax Views is made possible by patreon.com slash parallaxviews supporters. On that page, again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews, you can support me financially and help keep this show going with a monthly donation of $1, $5, $10, $15, or $100. And at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere Project. That's M-E-E-R, Mere Project. They are doing some very interesting work in regards to global warming and combating the consequences of it. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at the... $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And if you were in one of those tiers and didn't hear your name mentioned, please contact me on Patreon or by email at parallaxviewspod at protonmail.com and I will rectify that immediately. Sometimes I do not get the proper updates from Patreon about my new financial supporters and donors. So anyone that's having that issue, just drop me a line and we will rectify the problem as quickly as possible. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, we have a double feature for you. First up, we'll be hearing from Dr. Kara Kuni, the famous Egyptologist who now calls herself a recovering Egyptologist. Find out why in our conversation, in which we talk about her new book, The Good Kings, Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt and the Modern World. Later on in the show, we'll be hearing from Dr. Amana Hoti, a prominent scholar who has devoted her life to interfaith dialogue and fostering understanding between different cultures and religious communities. Her latest book is Gems and Jewels, The Religions of Pakistan, and let me tell you, it is a fascinating survey 
of the various religious communities in Pakistan, from the Parsi Zoroastrians to the Hindus of the Qatas Raj temples, which is surrounded by a body of beautiful emerald green water. But before we get to that, we welcome Dr. Kara Cooney to the program to discuss her book, The Good Kings, Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt and the Modern World. Welcome to Parallax Views, Kara Cooney, author of The Good Kings, Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt and the Modern World, and also someone whom I remember from my uh, years in high school and college watching the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. You made multiple appearances on there. I did. I was on seven or eight times. I can't remember how many, but that was um, that was a fun period in my life. Yeah, that was great. So I want to get into uh, this book, The Good Kings, and especially the first opening lines, which I think are... Uh, quite the way to start. You write, I am a recovering Egyptologist, but before we get to why you wrote that and, and, and what follows from that, how did you first fall in love with Egypt and, and maybe the image of Egypt that we have? I can hardly tell you. And it's something that I think a lot of Egyptologists have in common that, or, or anybody who studies antiquity, that you always loved the old and the dead, the ancient, and you really have no good explanation as to why, but you need to know more about these people. You need to crack their codes or read their languages or figure out what's going on. I'd always loved anything that was ancient. And I remember my mom brought home four books from a business trip with my dad to London. She went to the British Museum and she brought home four Usborne books. Maybe somebody out there knows those publishers. One on ancient Romans, one on Vikings, one on medieval Europe, whatever, like Hassel culture, and then ancient Egypt. And I knew those books inside and out. I had every picture memorized. I knew, you know, in their little detailed pictures of the little castle and there's a little toilet or Egypt. There's the little, you know, there's the villa. For, and you often get to follow a rich family so that you get to live in a, in a nice um, place somewhere. And uh, as I moved forward in my own education from primary to middle school to high school and then to, to university, Egypt just ended up being the one that kept calling to me for some reason. Um, the one that was the most intriguing, the one that never let me down in terms of interest. And um, yeah, so I just, I've just followed that to the end of the path, so to speak, with the PhD and, and in my case, the professorship. So that line, I am a recovering Egyptologist. Yeah. Uh, why are you a recovering Egyptologist and why did you choose to open it in such a, it's, it's a really great way to open it because I think it gets right to the point of where the book wants to go. I tried to hide it in the first chapter. I tried to bury the lead, so to speak, and work my way up to that statement. So I did have like a discussion of how it was. And then I'm like, and I am a recovering Egyptologist. And my editor was like, nope, you're burying the lead. This has got to be first. And I'm like, don't make me do it. Don't make me make it first. And, and she, she was like, no, this is gonna, this is gonna grab, this is going to be the better way of doing it. And, um, 
So I moved out to the front, shock and awe factor, right? And then you work through my reasoning for why that is throughout that first chapter. But it's, um, it's essentially a discussion of how we, all of us have our loves, um, our likes and our dislikes. Um, but particularly if we, if we have a favorite TV show or a favorite ancient time, I'm, you know, I, I can't go to ancient Egypt, but the reasons that we love it need to be examined. And the more I examined those, those um, interests and the more I examined the Egyptomania of Europe and the colonialism that is associated with it and the cultural appropriations and the grabbiness, um, the, the more I, I started to see that this, uh, this Egyptology was very positivist about this ancient culture. And I would say that that is countered in many, many antiquity studies, um, different studies of antiquity. For instance, there are those um, an antiquity experts who might glorify ancient Rome, but you can't really do that these days. It's not, it's not as possible. And the connections between Rome and our modern world are I think more apparent than between Egypt and our modern world. And we make those comparisons quite readily. And as such, we're less likely to positivistically laud and, and put this place on a pedestal, though we often do. Um, but Egypt is this place of mysticism and magic, so separate from a modern world. We, we do make it into something, um, uh, something that is untouchable, something that we shouldn't criticize in any way, shape or form. And, Yet, so much of what we're studying is an outright authoritarianism. And that's where I needed to, to talk about how I, as a white woman, um, academia as a, as a white dominant uh, profession, all of these things are, are connected to uh, patterns of exclusion and, um, and, and thus my recovery. <laughs> so it's interesting since you mentioned you know, that, that idea of Egyptomania and, and mm -hmm. sort of this positive approach. Do you think a lot of that is driven by um, what's been called sort of a, an, an Orientalism, a, a sort of, ah, uh, this is very exotic? Yeah, you know, Orientalism wants to have its cake and eat it too. And that's why it's so seductive and, and useful. So somebody like Edward Said, who, who really worked with that idea of Orientalism and of course wrote the book on the subject, um, he, he's there talking about how we're seduced by it at the same time that we're repelled by it, kind of a virgin whore sort of concept, if you like. Um, but I think that there is that aspect, that orientalizing aspect, but I think it goes deeper than that. There is the oriental despot, right? Um, and I think that 19th century and most 20th century orientalism maligned that oriental despot like think of the movie 300 and the persian king carried aloft right it's your typical oriental image of kingship he's lazy but he's huge and handsome and hot but he's like you know he's not good he's not there fighting amongst his people he is separate from his people he's demanding that they carry him in this carrying chair and um covered with jewels and and some somehow different from his people um so that's a super orientalizing image of a of a despot, of a, of a ruler who really shouldn't be there and is making bad decisions, but is, is there because of the luck of his draw, not because of any value that he has as a person. But 
I think that our love affair with or our Egyptomania, if you like, is more complicated than that. And we see kings like Ramses II and the way that Ramses II wanted to be seen. We see him as, as that king who is like Maximus and Gladiator, who's fighting amongst his people and his chariot is alongside theirs. And we value him for that without then critically examining what this authoritarian power was, was about. Ramses the, the II is still great for us in, in our estimation, in my opinion. And that's the kind of thing that I want to mess with. And I'm not trying to, you know, I say this in the first chapter, I'm not trying to denigrate Egypt. I'm not trying to take it down. I'm, I am separating its leaders from its people and I am separating its gods from its religion, state religion, um, as we always must do. But that doesn't mean that I, I can't criticize um, systems of power as I see them, particularly as they can be compared to ours. So I'm glad you brought up King Ramses II because he uh, he's sort of on the front cover there, his, his uh, yeah. coffin. So why King Ramses II? And, and for my listeners, if they're not as familiar with this character within Egyptian history, who was he? I mean, that's the wonderful thing about Egyptology is that everyone's a little bit familiar, right? I can go into a second grade classroom. I can talk to a group of adults and everyone's got a little bit of something about Egypt because it's so evocative. It's so uh, memorable. Ramses II was the master of celebrity kingship. Um, uh, the master of spin, the master of taking the battle of Kadesh, a battle that he arguably lost or was at least a draw in his fifth year against uh, the Hittites in a Syrian city named Kadesh. And he says, we're about to lose, everything's going horribly wrong. And then I stepped in and only I could save it. Only I could save the day. And these are tropes that we, we hear a lot in our modern day politics. Um, and he took that battle scenery, the, the images and put them in bright colors on all of his major temples. Um, and we know of them at Abu Simbel um, down south in Nubia. It's at his temple at Abydos on the outer gateways. It's at his Ramesseum on the outer gateways. Um, he put it at Karnak Temple. He put it at Luxor Temple. And he made sure that that imagery was there for everyone to see where he sets himself up with, you know, as that Maximus character and gladiator that, that a lot of men want to be and, um, and, and puts himself as a man above his people, but much more noble in, in station, more brave than any of them and without whom Egypt would have met its ruin. And that is a key point for his uh, justification of kingship. It's not as much the gods chose me and you must take me on as king, though that is there. It is more, look at the circumstances of this battle and see how the gods have favored me in this particular way and how I was able to step in, but also my own human mind, I was able to step in and make the choice um, and, and save the day. So it's, it's a more complicated, but much more modern understanding of, of leadership. Yeah. And getting into some of the comparisons for today, what are the comparisons you see between King Ramses II and, and say some of our leaders today? Yeah, I make it pretty upfront that I think Ramses II is a populist, that he's not connecting as much with his higher elite but instead is connecting with his base of priests at the temple institutions, soldiers in the military institutions, and using that base and his celebrity kingship 
to essentially drive a wedge between himself and old patrician families and gain more power in that way. Not that he isn't a patrician, not that he doesn't have money, not that he's not related and and marrying his daughters with these people. These things are happening, but he's um, creating another foundation of power that, as we know today, in you know from 2016 onward, is extraordinarily powerful, and and um, can allow you to make uh, gross mistakes in the world and still have no problems with with keeping your base happy because you are you are giving so much to them. And there's one really amazing image on a stela, a flat piece of stone that would have been displayed in some sort of temple space. And it's of King Ramses II standing on a colossal statue depicting himself. So he's standing on the lap seated statue, the lap of the statue of himself. And on this statue, which would have been, I don't know, five stories high, imagine. He's up there and below him are all his military, uh, the military base. And he's throwing out all kinds of trinkets, gold, um, necklaces, valor, um, symbols of valor, for them and they're all there with their hands up out, outstretched waiting to catch something like a like a mardi gras parade and that's his connection with his base and the i think the um the methods that we use today of rewarding uh, creating kickbacks creating contracts you know we say we don't have corruption in our government but of course we do and it's all there out in the open for everyone to see um the, the lobbyists that we allow into our, our government, the pay-to-play schemes we have uh, where you can essentially buy a politician in the open um, by giving money to campaigns and other things. I think these, these things are, these political ploys are something that Ramses II would have gotten immediately. And Ramses II would have also understood a politician that has to spray on a makeup or put on you know, an accoutrement to make himself look perfect or as perfect as one could look. Um, and, and also, I, you know, to add to this, we're in a time period of really old politicians in the United States. Lots of old guys, old white men running for office and gaining office. Ramses II ruled for 67 years. And when he died was, was certainly in his 80s. And, um, and that's th- that kind of patriarchy of the you know respect your elders that this needs to continue on that's something that i think that that fear of oh if we don't have this rule what will we it'll all go to hell in a handbasket ramsey's the second capitalized that and i think a lot of our old male rulers are doing the same it's interesting because when i think of the ways in which uh ancient egypt and uh a lot of these things like the pharaohs are portrayed in popular culture, it, it gets a bit odd because, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of, of old monster movies, you know, the, the Hammer mm-hmm. and the Universal movies. Uh, so like Boris Karloff in The Mummy or Christopher Lee in The, yeah. the Mummy. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because those films, they have a very apparent, uh, for today's audience's racist streak, but they also have this sort of fascination, I think, for people where uh, we're supposed to fear uh, you know, the, these others, but they're also sort of glamorous in a way, you know, the, the yeah. mummy uh, comes from royalty uh, and it's sort of, there's sort of this fascination with power, I think, that we have when it comes to ancient G- Egypt, as well as a, a sort of otherization going on. It, it's very interesting. 
I agree with you completely. And it's a point that I'm always making in class with my students. It's a point that I'm always making on my podcast and, and in other spaces that we fetishize ancient Egypt. And we do so without even realizing necessarily that we're doing it. We're, we're saying they're full of mystery and magic. And we say, we're not allowed to compare them to us. They're so different that, you know, I, I've been called universalist in some book reviews. How dare you compare, you know, politics in the United States to Ramses II? Who do you think you are? Um, and if we, if we particularize the ancient Egyptians and say that they can only be studied, but they're in their own space within their own time, we're almost dehumanizing them. We're making them into something that is so superhuman, so special that we're making them unhuman, um, that, that they are connected to these secrets of the universe that we would like to know. So there's this weird tension of dehumanization on the one hand, but on the other, what the, what they knew in their culture was if we could just get at it, we could just understand the hermetic texts or whatever it is, we could just understand how the pyramid actually was built. Then we would somehow be able to improve our own culture that they somehow had secrets that we, that we don't have. It's interesting that you bring up that universalism versus particularism, because in reading your book, that comes up a bit. And I've always found it interesting. I think I intuitively move towards uh, sort of universalistic approaches at time it's in the sense that I don't really think we're that much different than people from centuries ago. I think we have a lot more in common than we often realize. Um, yeah. It's one reason I don't like a lot of these um I'm not a big fan of things like ancient aliens where, you know, we, we make it that, oh, these people couldn't have done this, this or that because they're from long ago. They couldn't have been that uh, smart or skillful. And I, I think that's all uh, sort of BS in my opinion. But yeah. it, it's interesting. Why do you think a lot of people are drawn to that more particularist approach? Because I, I've never intuitively I've always gone towards that more universalistic sort of way of thinking about it. We're not just drawn towards it. Egyptologists are trained in it. I, th I think that we, you know, we are told that if you try to compare something from this ancient culture to, to e even to things outside of Egypt, that it's somehow wrong. And, and I would claim this is complicated. And I don't think I can exactly pinpoint the sources of it, though I've thought about it a bit. I would say much of it stems from ancient Egypt itself and its own superiority complex, its own um, ability to see itself as better and separate, its own entitlements, um, its own exceptionalism, right? So I think in the same way Americans might understand, oh, you can't compare America and, I don't know, Finland, you know, they, they don't have anything in common. We have this military, we have this, you know, economy, and look at how many people they have. You can't even compare them. And there, if you, if you have this exceptionalism that's bred into or written into, coded into the material that the, that the Egyptians are providing to us en masse in forms of temples and papyri and literature and all of these other things, these statues and stela that they produce, um, we end up getting seduced by that. And we end up thinking, oh yes, Egypt was somehow different. And it was different geographically. It's very different. Its culture is very different from West Asian or Greek or Roman or Southern African cultures. And, but, but by separating it out like that, um, we do so at our peril because then you can only compare Egypt to Egypt and everything gets rather 
mystical really fast and all about religion and and we don't see any real prime movers for for why things are happening in a particular society in a particular way we also create an egypt that is timeless and this is a problem that egyptologists have all the time they'll compare ramses the second to khufu not that you shouldn't do it but that the society that Ramses II is living in is very different from the society that Khufu is living in. And one has to be aware of those, of those changes through time and work with them each contextually. Um, there's, a, there's a lot going on in this um, that, that I think most Egyptologists as a field are trying to do to be a good scholar. And it actually ends up creating a field that is insular. It doesn't speak to other parts of, of the world of antiquity and its study. Um, and that that really puts Egypt on a pedestal that either can be too easily knocked down or discounted as something full of mystery and magic and why even bother, or that's that's so full of itself that it's just really annoying. <laughs> so it, it's funny, so I mentioned the whole uh, ancient aliens thing, and I've always hated that show. I'm not a big fan of it, but uh, I think you mentioned it like real briefly in the book in regards to, uh, you know, some of the... The, the kings of yesteryear would probably look at uh, people believing that the, the ancient aliens made the pyramids and uh, sort of smile to themselves or laugh. Oh, we got them again. Uh, yeah. Why do you make that sort of a uh, line of thought? Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Um, first, ancient aliens has asked me to be on the show like five times and I keep telling them, no, um, I won't be their Scully <laughs> in their, in their X-Files Mulder versus Scully. Um, but when it, you know, it, it annoys the Egyptologist to no end when somebody says that aliens built the pyramids. And the stock answer is how can, and, and it's a it's a correct answer. There's nothing wrong with it, is to say, oh, you know, you believe that the Egyptians couldn't have done it themselves. Well, that's racist. And then the person gets super defensive and it's a, and it's a, and it's over. Whereas I've found it easier to take the that that pyramid alien thing and say, oh, you think the aliens built the pyramids? You know, I've stood next to the Great Pyramid on the Giza Plateau and stood and looked up and the awe that it fills in my body and the confusion and puzzlement it puts in my mind is overwhelming. And it is an emotional response to this place. And it is so easy to look at this and to then know that we still don't know how these things were made. We don't. And Egyptologists can argue with each other till they're blue in the face. We don't know specifically how the Great Pyramid or Khafre's Pyramid next to it was made, um, how the stones were brought up there. We, can, we have all kinds of ideas, but we don't know. Um, the Egyptians aren't going to tell us because this was a weapon of the mind. It is meant to work on the human mind and to get the human being to subsume him or herself to a greater power and to think that the person that built that was so superhuman that they cannot be fathomed. They should not be fathomed. We shouldn't try to understand it. We should go right to the supernatural. And so when somebody brings that up to me today, I usually start with, you know, you want to believe that the pyramids were built by superhuman elements. That is exactly what the kings would want you to believe. And then when I do that, instead of calling them racist, which is not going to be helpful, it's not a good starting point to get somebody to think differently, right? They're going to say, I'm not racist. And then that's it. It's over, right? You, they're going to go, oh my God. I'm, and I'm going to say, it is still working on our human minds today. That's how powerful it is. That's why we're still drawn to these things. That's why pyramids were built in Sudan, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years later. Um, th this is why Cestius built a pyramid for his burial in Rome. Um, th this shape is on our dollar bill. 
th there is a, a great fascination with this and it is evocative of such untouchable power. And that's where I like to go with it because it is a propaganda device par excellence. There is, there is no other better way, but it can only happen once, it seems, maybe twice, of setting the king up as a god. But as I explained in that first chapter, to get that pyramid built, you have to empower so many elites that your power is gone before the pyramid's done, which is so ironically wonderful. I can't even. So it's interesting, uh, since you're bringing up that, that relationship between uh, the images that we get from something like the pyramid or you know, e even the tombs of these uh, late kings of antiquity, it's always interested me. I, I remember as a teenager, you know, I was into like, you know, counterculture type stuff. So I, I would read people like, um, you know, Timothy Leary, the famous LSD oh. guru. And he, I remember he wrote something once where he was talking about the ways in which, you know, if you, if you look at a cathedral, isn't it interesting that you can hear uh, the bells when they go off in a cathedral? It's almost like the sound of God. And in a way, mm -hmm. uh, these things almost become propaganda weapons, whether we realize it or not, whether it was intended that way or not. And I wanted to get into that more because I, I, yeah. I think you're right. I think uh, the images we have of, of uh, even, even figures like uh, Nefertiti, uh, we sort of buy into this image of, of godlike figures in human form. It is, and this is such a cool point because how easily can belief, um, true profound belief or beauty, beauty of music, beauty of form, um, beauty of sound, how can these things um, be co-opted? And that's, so then people are like, how dare you criticize the beauty of our Egyptian people? And I'm like, no, no, not criticizing the beauty of these statues. I am, but I am getting you to think how they work upon your mind. Um, I'm not criticizing Egyptian religion and its solar cult and all of these things, but I am getting you to look at the co-option and how people in power then uh, ride the coattails of it. And these religions and these belief systems or just beauty in and of itself, these things are older than humanity. They're a part of our natural world and one could do, and, and people have done all kinds of studies of beauty about symmetry and um, a beautiful face being evocative of the ability to, to reproduce and associated with sexuality. And we're attracted to certain faces because we know that's health. Health equals beauty. And I mean, it's, um, you know, beauty is so much of what the Egyptians produced. People go as a tourist, you go to Egypt. And when I'm in the temple of Abydos built by Seti I, I can't tell you how blown away I am by the beauty of this place, the cut of each, of each relief, the, the sureness of the application of paint and the line. And when I'm standing in that place, I am more awed than I am looking at Michelangelo's ceiling in the, in the Sistine Chapel. Somebody else is gonna be more awed by the Sistine Chapel, that's fine. They're both beautiful and they are both co-options of beauty for power. They're co-options of our emotions that are connected with that beauty to manufacture power. And it's, um, it's a tricky line to draw. And it, it makes me think of how something that can seem beautiful at one point in time 
as it is misused and as people start to see it for what it is, that thing that had become beautiful becomes grotesque, becomes decadent. Is it still symmetrical? Yes. Is it still beautiful in a, in a, in a scientific form? Yes. But we now read into it a different kind of beauty. So you could look at a Lenny Riefenstahl film of Hitler. And in the moment where you're, in, you're watching it and you're, it's evoking and maybe you're a believer of this Third Reich, you know, this new power and this, this beautiful thing that Hitler is producing, it's beautiful. And then after the atrocities, what is associated with the beauty of that parade is a, a decadent grotesqueness. And it's still the same beauty. It's still the same thing. And that could explain changes in names we give at birth you know the name Brittany used to be awesome and now it's associated with just everyone having the name or it could be associated with certain fashions of you know the the late 18th century dress that the French door was invented because it was so wide so you could walk through it right and then it becomes this grotesque thing so that that's not beautiful anymore you have to make this dress that's much smaller in its indices and proportions but the idea of Beauty being absolutely embedded with power is very, very interesting. And I think um, one could do more discussions of this over the long durée and understand that the beautiful is right there on the knife's edge of becoming the ugly uh, in, in what it does to us. And I, I find that, um, you know, having grown up as a Catholic, very interesting that even ideas of divinity as an ex-Catholic, I might rebel against and be like, I'm not, nope. And it's like that they've made all of divinity ugly in a sense because of what I was exposed to in the Catholic church, right? So all of it becomes ugly. And then you have to, as with that trauma, <laughs> you, you, with that PTSD, you have to then pull out, no, that's still beautiful. That's still valued. That's still okay. And you have to find a way um, to reinvent it. And somebody will reinvent it. That somebody always does. And, um, and then once we don't have the triggers, the old thing might become beautiful again. I love that point. I hadn't thought about it in those words. So thank you for that, that insight. I was just going to add though to that. To me, it goes even beyond the, the beauty and grotesque sort of mm. dichotomy in, in the sense that, you know, like for instance, you, you talk about in the book, uh, making comparisons between uh, statues of the past and things like uh, these Confederate monuments that mm -hmm. a lot of people want taken down now. And it's it's really fascinating to me. When you look at these uh, Confederate statues, you're always looking up at them and they're looking yeah. down at you. Yeah. You know, the the, the pharaohs uh, get, are, are buried in, in sort of extravagance. You know, mm -hmm. they're not like you. You don't get buried there. You're unequal. You're not yeah. like them. And I, I think a lot of the symbols we see in in art and uh, whatnot uh, is about reinforcing in some ways uh, this sense of inequity. Yes, yes, but you can't go so far in that the person can't participate. Some, you need the 20% of society, maybe 10 in ancient Egypt's case, to be able to participate and feel that they could be connected to that, that they could be in the room where it happens, that they could be in the throne room with the king. Um, that they could be in the harem or in some way, shape or form in the same way that, you know, we watch Hollywood films or, or television shows and we connect with Marie Antoinette. We're not going to be Marie Antoinette, but we can imagine, oh, what if I were? And so there's there's always this idea that um, that we could be Bill Gates, too. 
<laughs> in a sense. And so you have to build that into it. It has to be something that's somewhat participatory, even if it's only in, a, in an imagined sense, so that people feel like, you know, Americans are obsessed with, with um, money and excess and exclusivity and inequality, but mostly because they feel they could be the person at the top. And the person walking by the Confederate monument, the one person who's meant to be downtrodden is going to feel as if that statue is staring at them and casting them down. The black person, maybe the poor white person, but probably not. The poor white person will see, and the rich white person will see in that, what, Alabama, Texas, whatever that Confederate, wherever that Jim Crow statue is, will feel that they are at the top of the pedestal, that that's their ancestor, that that person fought for their power. They may not conceptualize it exactly that way, but they'll put themselves up at the top of that pedestal rather than feel it glowering down upon them. And that's the kind of thing I I'm working with in this book. I want us to be looking at the Jim Crow statue or the Egyptian statue with not disgust, but with a deep sense of longing and love and connection, because that's what works upon our minds best. You don't work on people's minds through oppression as easily as you work through love. It's interesting to... Well, it's, it's interesting for me, at least. You know, when we talk about Egypt, you said that some people feel like, like oh, you're, you're denigrating Egypt. But what I find odd about that is when we're talking about Egypt, are we really talking about Egypt? And what I mean by that is I think most of the time we're talking about, you know, pharaohs. We're talking about yeah. Nefertiti. We're, we're not yeah. talking about the people who, you know, did the, the labor of building the pyramids. Yeah. And, the, and these are really two different stories. Um, and, and somebody on my Facebook, where I have some really interesting discussions, had a really wonderful point, which was, you know, when I'm talking about this history, I say Ramses II built this temple. Seti I built his mortuary temple at Abydos, like he's rolling his sleeves up and getting down to business. And he's not. He's ordering it. He's commissioning it. He's saying, go to his, his lieutenant, who then brings it to another lieutenant, who brings it to another guy, who then gets all the guys to go and build it. There's a whole, a whole level of skimming off the top along the way, right? And a lot of game of telephone. But we do like to think of the history as if it is written by those guys at the very top. And it makes me think of another book, and I'll have to give this to you um, later in an email to put in your show notes, but it's a wonderful book recently published by American University Press. And it's about the lamentations of the dead that are still sung or chanted in upper Egypt today, whether you're Christian or you're Muslim, you bring in a sheikh for a dead person in certain parts of upper Egypt. And they say things like, when you meet the serpent at the sixth area, you know, answer this. And this is still happening today. There is this long durée connection between ancient Egyptian religious tropes and, and what people are, are going into the afterlife with or what you're sending the dead into the afterlife with. And that's that kind of real Egypt of real people is very difficult to find because you're you're just barely touching it. You can only find what is there um, lasting for us. It's like when I was driving around with my son here and he said, what's that? I said, oh, that's a it was a spray painted mural. I said, that's a mural to the Tonga, the people, the Native Americans who used to live here and probably still do live here 
um, in the city of Los Angeles, but because Los Angeles is so big and there's no separate identity, you know, they don't, they, they had to blend in and it's, you know, who are the Tongva? Where are they? So, you know, what is the Native American of California? How can we find that? Where are the Tongva? Where are the Egyptians? And they don't exist and yet they're there somehow, but you can barely find them. And the Tongva existed here just 200 years ago, 300 years ago. Um, they still exist, but how much, you know, you can go and ask them for their songs and their language, but you can't touch the Tongva of 400 years ago because they didn't leave us monuments to find our way to them. You can only use the living humans who have kept something from the past to apply them to the humans of the past. And I would argue that for most Egyptians, 90% of ancient Egyptians, you have to use the living Egypt of the present to apply it to the Egypt of the past to try to find them. And that's not an easy proposition when you're dealing with electricity and an Aswan high dam and different farming techniques and all of these different things. This is, um, this is a, a real problem that we're only able to find the rich and only their preferred story. We're all just telling each other stories. That's all history is. And that's why the word history is, <laughs> is apt, right? We usually tell history from the, the top down as opposed Absolutely. to the, the bottom up. I know, I know a lot of people take issue. I know a lot of issues that take, his, that take issue with um, Howard Zinn's The People's History uh, book, yeah. but there's a, there's a good point to the idea behind it in that you know, maybe we should look at history from a bottom up perspective. What about these yeah. other people? Yeah. Egypt does allow a lot of it, more of it than other places because its geography is so preservative. So you can find the actual ancient people of Egypt preserved in cemeteries in a way that you will not find elsewhere. Now, there's a moral question there. Do we get to dig up these bodies and MRI them and look for their health details? And do they want us to do that? Is that something that the ancient people are offering up willingly or are we taking that? But it does mean that we can talk about how, how people worked and look at their repetitive stress fractures. And we can talk about their health and look at tuberculosis scars on their, on their bones. You can say a lot when they had childbirth, when they experienced childbirth as, as young girls, you know how young, you can make an estimation um, potentially if the, only if the, the person died, the woman died in childbirth young, then it ossifies that literally. Um, but so there is more there is more that we can do. And there are Egyptologists who are doing this kind of work, looking at pottery of a basic type, looking at basketry, um, looking at um, poor, poor quality clothing, looking at poor quality burials. And you can tell a story of the poor. I, I do engage in that sometimes, but generally I'm there to ask what the powerful are doing and thereby apply that to the poor in a constant fashion or to the unseen in a constant fashion. So if I'm going to tell the story of the powerful, it is going to always be with the perspective that this is the top 1%. And what about everybody else? So that actually leads me into a question I had about uh, this idea, or it's a concept, as you call it. And I think it's also the name of an Egyptian goddess, but the uh, Ma'at. Mm-hmm. Could you yeah. tell my listeners what that is and how yeah. you would relate it to things today? Yeah, I just had a, an argument with a with a scholar about this concept, actually. So this might be a little longer than you would like, but here we go. So ma'at means truth, justice, order, 
um, the way of doing things, the proper way of doing things, as if there is an inherent and objectifiable truth, right? And Ma'at can be personified as a goddess with a feather on her head, an ostrich feather. And that same feather is used to weigh the heart of the deceased when they step into the hall of judgment. Their heart is weighed against that feather to determine if they are ordered, truthful, disciplined, if they, if they are good and able to go. But Ma doesn't mean good. It means true, right? And so you look at this concept and people have written books about this. There's a, a, a book that still hasn't been translated into English, I don't believe, called Ma'at by a, a well-known uh, Egyptologist named Jan Asman, who's, who's very, very good, collects all of the texts about Ma'at, put all of, puts all of this together, and discusses how systems of government order things, how without Ma'at, you will have chaos, you will have anarchy, everything will go horribly wrong. Well, we find ourselves at an interesting time, don't we, in which David Wengrow and David Graeber have just written a book called uh, At the Dawn of Everything. And there they discuss that these ideas of order, I mean, this is an anarchist book, right? That these ideas of order are very much encoded and embedded in an unequal society to the benefit of the, the people at the top of that social pyramid. And that we didn't always live this way. And in fact, humanity for um, hundreds of thousands of years, as however you identify Homo sapiens sapiens, which keeps getting older, um, interestingly, did not live with this idea of order in, 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 a, in a government or state-run kind of way. And Wengro and Graeber, in their book, even say there, there are, they pull out um, elements that show that you can have an organized society and still have people not following this order. And the argument that I got in in a, in a seminar context was, I said, no Egyptologists look at Ma'at from the concept of law and order, um, from the bottom of society, how people, how a, a Black person in Compton feels when the cops roll up in front of their house. It's very different from the way that the white person in Brentwood feels when the cops roll up in front of their house. One is like, oh shit, the cops are here. What are they gonna do to us? What, what could we possibly have? And the Brentwood people are like, oh my God, that's so great, the cops are here. So everyone's conditioned to understand what this order, this ma'at is going to do to them. And we need a whole lot more of that ambivalence applied to ma'at within Egyptology, because right now it is beyond positivist. It is, um, it is, it is very apologist uh, towards this idea that without it, things will fall into chaos. And we really drink the Kool-Aid, in my opinion, as far as Ma'at is concerned. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting point. So there's just two more things I wanted to cover briefly here. Uh, the first is something that comes up with uh, the answer to uh, the last question, and that's what has the reaction uh, been to this book? And I know you recently wrote an op-ed for uh, the website sapiens.org. Uh, Egyptology has a problem, patriarchy, which delves into this in depth. Yeah. Um, I think that three Egypt Egyptologists shared that on my socials, three um, out of hundreds. And uh, one is a colleague I've co-written with. Um, one is a grad student of mine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, a, and a future colleague um, or a colleague already. But it's, um, it's been pretty much crickets. There was a snarky comment on the socials where um, uh, somebody said, I don't need any recovery. 
uh, and it was pretty clear that it was in reference to the first line of my book. Don't need a recovery, don't want it. Um, so, you know, obviously I'd hit a nerve, but it was, it was not in a good way. And so, but, but I have noticed that the book has really been well received among millennials and Gen Zers. So those who are just entering grad school are like, this is, this is great. We need more of this perspective. And, um, I think maybe more than three people shared it now that I think about it. <laughs> I'm being too mean. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's a generational thing. So the people in my generation, this is not what they were trained to think, uh, how they were trained to think. This is not the way that they see ancient Egypt. Um, some can, but for the most part, when I connect with this book, it is to the, the up and coming um, Egyptologists to whom I say Egyptology is dead because Egyptology as it is being practiced now is dying and you can see it and it needs to die and it needs to remake itself into something else. So it's a very much a generational conversation that I'm having. Um, so that's been the reaction within my field. It is a book criticizing my field. And so you can't expect the field's going to be all puppies and rainbows about it. There's certainly not. Um, and, and I think that, and I was just talking to, um, a colleague of mine, Amber Myers-Wells, I was talking with her and I said, I think the book's got legs. It's, it's not going to be a rip-roaring, um, you know, bestseller where people are just like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's changed the way that I think because I'm telling a lot of things to people who don't want to hear it. The public doesn't want to have their pharaohs ripped down. Egyptologists don't want their pharaohs ripped down. Nobody wants to hear a lot of these things that I have to say. So I'm the uncomfortable Cassandra who's, you know, telling all of these things and, and people are like, yeah, we'd rather not. And so there's just a lot of um, head shaking and, and um, eye rolling and, and not a lot of interest. But let, you know, ask me that question again in two years. Ask me again in five years. Ask me again in 10. I think this book is going to last the test of time of being there at a turn, uh, a sea change of what antiquity studies are, how we conceive of them within, embedded within the anti-intellectualism of our times. And I think that it's too soon for me to answer this question. I can tell you right now, people are gestating it <laughs> um, slowly. And, um, and it's, it's people, a lot of people feel it's too angry a lot of people, even though I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, it's angry, but I'm not going out there and yelling and screaming. People always perceive things as angry when it's not representing the dominant culture that they want to support. Is there um, really a, is there a denial though about, I mean, the, these Egyptian kings were. I know, isn't I mean, it crazy? These were, these were autocracies. I mean, do people I really deny that? You know, I saw this on the socials. And it, it's so fun to see academics arguing and talking with each other on social media because like at a conference, and we haven't had that for some years now in the midst of this pandemic, you get more authentic discussions than you would in, in another more curated space. And I was on uh, Twitter and it was like history Twitter. It was an archaeology site. And, and one archaeologist was like, and it was this when the book came out in November. And they're like, duh. Really, the kings were authoritarian. Tell us something we don't know. And another archaeologist, and this is like you know an Americanist archaeologist, right? Um, said, "No, you don't understand how Egyptology works. You don't get it, and you don't under and, and maybe you don't watch Discovery Channel or History Channel to see how Egyptology is consumed. 
And, but then if you're in that world, um, you can see why people don't want to take down these kings and how I've even been called anti-Egyptian because of this, because we're also talking about a moment of great nationalism in Egypt in which these kings are being co-opted for modern authoritarianism. And me coming in and writing this book at exactly this moment is very uncomfortable for many of my Egyptian colleagues who cannot and will not say anything about this book. And I can't expect them to. So it, it just, I think, really hits the point home that when we want to believe in authoritarianism and believe that it's good, we're going to do so. Even if it's staring us right in the face what it is, if we benefit from it, who the hell cares? Don't want to talk about it. Nothing to see here. Move along. And um, you would think, oh, my God, this is so obvious. I agree with you, which is why I'm myself like, really? But um, yeah, it's um, <laughs> there's there's a lot of eye rolling and anger out there a, a great deal. Since we touched on this issue of, you know, autocracy and, and populism and authoritarianism, and, and I don't know if you can comment on this at all or if you've thought about it, but it's so interesting to me. I think we have these forms of populism arising today that, you know, the, the idea on its own, the idea of, oh, the popular, the, the, the we, the people uh, get our interests defended. In actuality, though, it seems like uh, really the, the leaders sort of uh, using a populist veneer uh, don't really want to help the people. It's about maintaining uh, th their sort of status and the status of others. Oh, yeah. And, and when people say, um, oh, you're just comparing this to the United States at the end of it. I'm like, oh, no, this is at the beginning of it. When the Declaration of Independence was written, when the Constitution included uh, enslaved people as only part of people, all of this is there encoded, but it is encoded in a democratic republic veneer. And so that's like the last chapter of the book, essentially, where the first one, too, where I'm, I'm, I'm saying... It is easy to see authoritarianism when it is not yours because it's wearing a crook and a flail or it's wearing a military junta uniform or it's, you know, it's Stalin with his big mustache or it's in the past and, you know, and it's Hitler from, you know, 80 years ago and it's different and it's something you can see immediately when it is the water in which you swim and they are messing with your mind and when the crook and flail is a business tie and a suit, you cannot see it for what it is. And we, we are now, all kinds of veils are being ripped from people's eyes today. And I do actually believe that we are going through another human revolution. It's a big statement for me to make. I make it in the book that if we went through the agricultural revolution some 10,000 years ago, we went through the industrial revolution some, I don't know, 500, unless you want to count ancient Rome, which is possible. It's an industrial revolution, sexual revolution, because here I am talking to you, right? I'm not in the, in the kitchen with my babies. Um, we are now going through a, whatever it is, we don't know what we can even call it yet. We're, we're on the edge of a knife between destroying the planet and ourselves or, or moving into something different. And we all feel that we're on the edge of this cliff into, an, into a, a what? I would categorize it as an anti-patriarchal revolution. And I don't know what form that's going to take. It's not going to be completed, barely started within my lifetime. And it's something that's going to take generations to take down systems that need to be deconstructed and rebuild new ones in very painful ways. We are going to go through some stuff. And that's where we find ourselves situated. And that's why 
of the perspective of a historian who who can look back 5000 years and see how long these things take to develop who can then apply that same site to the United States and say oh my god 250 years not even whatevs um and and then look forward and see what could potentially be there in the future but in a very different reality in which the the real game changer the real variable now is the environmental devastation that patriarchy has caused that you would have in microcosm you know when Ephesus silts up or when um, a place has to be abandoned or you know they they create too much lime and the forests are cut down you know you have it in microcosm throughout history and you see places collapse because of environmental devastation but not on this scale and not in a way where all of the globe has to change or we die um, it's a real interesting time to be alive and it's a real interesting time to demand that we deconstruct the systems that we have lived with for thousands of years. I, I wanted to add yeah. to that real quickly, yeah. if I could. I, I was going to say, it's not just systems. It's almost, you know, since you were talking about Egyptian religion, I almost feel like we have our own brand of a, a, oh, a sort yes. of religion here, a, a oh, sort of yes. religion of exceptionalism. I mean, yes. you know, I, people don't like it when I say this and they think I'm being all radical, but I, I think it's oh, just really oh. easily observable, which is, uh, you know, we've sort of divinized uh, the founding fathers. And also when you look at just look at the Supreme Court. I mean, these are basically theologians interpreting a holy document. And it's dying before our eyes. And you can see them on the take. You can see the Supreme Court getting paid to play with Kavanaugh getting all of his debts paid off. And that still shows up on Twitter. Tell me who paid off Kavanaugh's credit card debts, right? And then you've got um, uh, Clarence Thomas with all of his conflicts of interest uh, connected directly to January 6th, which is extraordinarily interesting. So you see those, those priests getting defrocked before your eyes. To work with this, um, what you call a religion but not, I would, I would encourage you to read what is in some ways a difficult book, but it's really wonderful in its main concepts. And this is Michael Mann's The Sources of Social Power, M-A-N-N. And it, his first volume deals with antiquity. And he separates social power up into four parts, ideological, economic, military, and political. And he uses ideological, not religious. Religious is a part of ideological power, but the United States claims to be, you know, separation of church and state. We don't have religious power in this place, but the ideological power we have of being patriotic, kneeling in a kind of emperor cult to the flag, um, respecting the veteran, at least ideologically, certainly not in reality. And um, all of these, these things that we, that we exceptionalize, and as you say, a sacred document, we have scripturalized the Constitution because only by scripturalizing it, and you grew up hearing, it's a living document, BS. It has now become scripturalized because it serves the originalists who are the, those in the dominant culture to keep it that way and to lock that shit down so that no one can, can change it at all. Um, it will devalue the document to such an extent that um, I think it's possible even that could be tossed out in its entirety as it is revealed that what was perceived as beautiful is monstrous. So then the final question here is the title, The Good yes. Kings, because yes. people have looked at that title and are probably saying, why is she using the good king? She doesn't seem to think the kings are that good. Uh, but you have yeah. a very good reason for calling it that. Yeah, because when the patriarchy sells itself 
most effectively. It is through that goodness. It is through that love, that fatherly embrace that I will keep you safe. And it is that it is, um, in a sense, uh, a kind of grooming, if you like. And I and I don't want to get too dark, but it's kind of dark um, that the people that can abuse us the most effectively are those who have used love and care and or the lies of love and care to groom us into thinking that we will be safe in their embrace. And they are often the ones that exploit and abuse us the most. Most of my titles are rather sly. Um, the last book I wrote, When Women Ruled the World, the women did rule the world. They were leaders of state. They were set up as nothing less than king. And yet they're just there as placeholders for a patriarchy. And it's a tragedy. So it's, it's saying one thing and meaning something else entirely. And the good kings is the same. You know, you want to draw that person in who's like, oh my God, they were so good. <laughs> and then I'm knocking down at the knees with what is goodness? What is ma'at? What is justice? What is truth? How is it all just a story that's been constructed by those in power? And that's where I want to go, that even systems of morality that we think are objective are not objective. And only the people, I'll, I'll end with this point, that when Trump was elected and all these people on the left started to freak out, and I'm watching socials and watching discussions, and I remember a, a Black um, person in the United States, and I can't remember, you know, somebody who's written amazing things, um, but was like, y'all freaking out. <laughs> Look at y'all freaking out. We've been dealing with this for 300, 400 years and no one's noticed it. And everyone's saying we're so angry and so difficult. And now that you can see the authoritarianism affecting you personally, now you're freaking out and you think it's new and it is not new. It is all just your perspective of what this goodness is. People who are on the side of the exploited know that this goodness is, is not what it claims to be. Well, I want to thank you again, Kara Cooney, for coming on Parallax Views. Let me know, uh, let my listeners know, I should say, how they can get a copy of the book and anything else uh, you may want to say in closing. And I, I want to point this out. I think that a lot of guys would do well to read this book if they're, you know, uh, you know, if steam's coming out of their ears right now, hearing uh, a woman talk about patriarchy, uh, you're not you know, like going after all the dudes and being like, you're mm -hmm. irredeemable. That's not what you're doing at all. And I think if they read the book, they'll see that. Yeah, I have, um, I have a lot of very special men and boys in my life and the patriarchy harms men and boys as much as it harms females. And it even pushes us into these binary categories that we're blowing up day by day. Um, just two examples of, you know, Boy Scouts and Roman Catholic priests who was harmed most um, boys and men and um, that's the patriarchy doing that. So this is not anti-man, it's pro-human, as I like to say. Um, but you can find me um, on all the socials. Uh, my most vibrant discussions are on Facebook, which is interesting because that's where all the old white men are. And it makes for a much more <laughs> vibrant debates, um, which, which I find uh, scintillating myself. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, but I'm not much of a selfie girl, so I don't put as much on the Instagram. Um, I have a YouTube channel and I have, during the pandemic, I taped a whole lot of me speaking to the audience on YouTube um, and, and those are available there. Like there's one called, um, is Egyptology racist? Short answer, yes. That has gotten a lot of views as you can imagine. And, um, and I started a new podcast with uh, my colleague, Jordan Galzinski, also my graduate student. 
And um, that podcast is available everywhere. Podcasts are, are, are um, Apple Music, Spotify, all of these other things. Also my YouTube. And, um, and the book, The Good Kings, is available wherever books are sold. And if you want a signed copy, I would encourage you to go to Book Soup, like the soup that you eat, booksoup.com. And every copy that they sell is signed by me. And thank you again, Kara Cooney, for coming on Parallaxies. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Next up, Dr. Amina Hoti joins us to discuss her book, Gems and Jewels, The Religions of Pakistan. This is a fascinating conversation where we'll learn about all kinds of religious communities in Pakistan, including the Parsi Zoroastrians, the Sufi Muslims, as well as the Hindu and Buddhist communities of Pakistan, and much, much more, including the efforts that Dr. Hoti has undertaken more broadly to foster interfaith dialogue that creates understanding and respect between different cultures and communities. So with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Dr. Amana Hoti, author of, again, Gems and Jewels, The Religions of Pakistan. Welcome to Parallax Views, Dr. Amina Hoti, author of Gems and Jewels, The Religions of Pakistan. How are you doing today? And could you tell my listeners a, a little bit about yourself? Uh, great. Well, uh, very nice to be here, JG, with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I've done my PhD at Cambridge, uh, done a few, pioneered a few peace building courses, um, and just written a, a book on, right behind us here, Gems and Jewels and in which I explore about 10 religious communities. So we could talk about that. So where I wanted to start out was um, your background and uh, just some of the, the challenges uh, that you've faced, um, you know, uh, whether it be misogyny or, or cultural stereotypes and Islamophobia, and also, you know, overcoming uh, health issues, because I think you have a really inspiring story to tell in, in many ways with the challenges you've overcome? Thanks, uh, JG. That's a really good question. Um, yes, I've had many challenges, uh, you know, from our part of the world. My mother is from Swat, um, and that is uh, the north of Pakistan. As you know, they were, there was a period when there were uh, Taliban who dominated the area and they did not want girls' education. So for example, Malala Yousafzai, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, was in fact targeted for striving towards education and girls' voices, etc. So my mother's side comes from there and my great-grandfather, who played a key role in spirituality and leadership, he was very keen on women's education. So uh, my Parents supported me, my family supported me, but the wider cultural constraints were extreme. And there was a point where 
you know, my higher education was not encouraged. So there were all those challenges. And of course, while writing this book, Gems and Jewels, The Religions of Pakistan, um, I fell ill, I, had, uh, I was diagnosed for cancer. Uh, and while doing my chemotherapy and surgery, I was editing the book. So I, we were continents apart. I was in, based in DC, the editor was in Lahore in Pakistan. Uh, and we had huge challenges, but thanks to WhatsApp and modern technology, we were able to communicate, although I'd get up at two in the morning and sometimes read some of the stories about the saints and the wonderful heroes of our world and really, really get inspired. And I think that's what kept my spirit going. And I was very keen to finish the book before anything would happen to me. So I was, you know, just before my surgery, I worked till really, you know, into the night. I just worked and sent the manuscript just before uh, going into that surgery. If you could, uh, I, I want to stick on um, some of those challenges. Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, the issues of, of uh, sort of misogyny or, or sexism. What helped you to, to overcome that? I know that you were, your, your father, who's been on the show, um, Ambassador Akbar Ahmed, uh, was, was very high on pushing you with, with regards to your intellectual pursuits. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about those issues of um, women in, in the Islamic world and overcoming a lot of those uh, challenges related to sexism and, and uh, sh- chauvinism and misogyny. Well, uh, that's um, a really good place you've pointed to, JG, because there is a difference between cultural background and religious context. And within the religious context, um, education is encouraged. In fact, the prophet of Islam said, go unto China, which at that time was a very far place from his center point. And he said, education for both men and women is compulsory. And then also, all the Abrahamic faiths uh, are based on books uh, and knowledge and seeking knowledge. So including the Islamic texts. And so religion says, yes, you know, go for education, but culturally when you're in a tribal context, as I was in a Pukhtun tribal context where segregation is um, practiced commonly and men and women have separate lives, sometimes for women to come in public spaces is not encouraged or not appreciated or not celebrated. And so I always had that dual challenge of, uh, you know, wanting uh, for for my uh, world community as a member of my world family and my faith always encouraged me to study, to seek education. For example, the United Nations, one of their key um, points is to seek education and to, you know, strive towards excellence. And at the same time, my university, Cambridge University, encouraged me. My um, holy texts encouraged me. My prophet, my prophets, all of them encouraged me. But then culturally, there were those restraints, and so there was that tension. There was always that tension that sometimes women face, and that was that could be quite challenging and quite severe. I think it's also very fitting um, that you've uh, devoted so much to interfaith dialogue and, and helping people understand Islam because 
and, and this is slightly off topic. Uh, we'll get back to my outline in a second, but I, I believe your name in Arabic uh, means um, honest or faithful and also is a reference to uh, the mother of, of the Prophet Muhammad, right? Yes, that's that's correct. I am trying to be faithful, trying to be faithful to the world community, to the idea of righteousness, goodness, uh, towards striving, towards understanding and respecting the other. And of course, um, all these values are, again, very much Abrahamic. It's very much based within uh, the Quran, the prophet's message. You know, Abraham, uh, Jesus, Moses, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon them all. Uh, and so th this message is so important to strive, to work, to seek knowledge, etc. But it was also at home, it was something that, like, as you pointed out, my father practiced it and encouraged it in each one of us. So, for example, in 1947, when partition took place between India and Pakistan, he was a very small boy of four. And his mother made a choice to not go on a certain train on which everybody on that train was slaughtered. And simply because of hate, because of, you know, you belong to a certain community, so you persecute the other. And so my father decided to challenge that and to rather than hate, rather than persecute, rather than um, be part of that genocide, he wanted to build bridges and to reach out to understand. And he found that the more friends we make across boundaries, the richer the world is, because at the end of the day, we're so many people, so many voices, JG, that you know we really need to reach out. And so interfaith proves to be a very valuable tool and subject that is also interdisciplinary. For example, when I studied at my uh, university, I, my subject was social anthropology. So it was a lovely subject to begin with, but some of the founders of my subject, for example, these big names such as Malinowski, Bronislaw Malinowski, were looking at other people and other tribes and using the word savages. So that didn't feel right. And particularly if it's about your own community. He didn't use it about, you know, the communities I was related to, but as a matter of empathy, which I studied and began to teach later, I thought, you know, empathy is all about stepping into the shoes of the other person and really understanding them and respecting them. And that's what I wanted to bring in. So my subjects were interdisciplinary. I drew from anthropology, religion, sociology, uh, the different subjects that we had and across boundaries. And so we uh, pioneered new courses, both at the University of Cambridge and then in South Asia. And I found that a lot of people who came into the classes had very hard opinions, but slowly they moved towards friendship, understanding, empathy, respect, etc. Could you give an example of what you mean by maybe hard opinions? Yes, yes. So in one of the classes, this was in South Asia, we have one of the oldest universities, which predates uh, Pakistan, India. So it's called the Foreman Christian College, uh, which is now a university. It's a wonderful big institution. You have a variety of students and professors. Uh, the principal is Presbyterian Christian. 
Uh, and in my class, I had a couple of boys and girls, and one of the boys was from you know the northern areas. Um, and he had never been in contact with other cultures or people. And this course was the, was the very first for him. So he came into class and he said, people of other faiths should be killed. That's a religious obligation. And for me as a teacher, someone who's talking about peace, someone who's talking about knowledge, education, respect for the other, for me, that was so harsh and almost shocking. Uh, but I didn't want to, um, you know, you, you have, you could either throw the student out or embrace him and say, son, you know, let's go on this journey together. And that's what interfaith dialogue is about. It's not about saying, look, we have real extreme opinions. So we're good. He's going to be my enemy. But we say, no, let's see how we can begin to talk. And you understand my perspective and I understand yours. And this way, JG, this student began to read and study women's perspectives, ethnic perspectives, religious perspectives. He read the Abrahamic faiths, etc. He read the chief rabbi's book on the dignity of difference. And at the end of the course, I said, okay, son, now what do you, do you still want to, do you still hold that opinion, you know, that you want to get rid of people of other faiths, although they're your principle, your principle is from a Christian faith. So, I mean, that, that would be horrible. So he said, no, ma'am, I'm a changed person. Now I want to read. I want to love and respect other people. And so for me, JG, as a teacher, that one moment, you know, when you see that mindset change and you see that, oh, this boy could have gone on to do terrible things, but now instead he'd rather go to the library. He'd rather pick up a book, he's calmer. You know, he's, he's much more willing to engage. For me, that was like, as a teacher, we had done many things. We'd done books, we'd done other projects, but this was my little moment where I said, yay, well done to our team. Yeah. I it's interesting because that brings up a point that I, I wanted to make to you. When it comes to interfaith dialogue, I, I feel like people that are fearful of interfaith dialogue, especially here in the U.S., I think we have, I would just say, very, very right-wing elements that, you know, look at interfaith dialogue as, as like, oh, they're trying to degrade my own faith. And I don't think that's at all what interfaith dialogue is about. It's not about uh, someone degrading, you know, their, their Christian faith if they're Christian. It's about both sides or all different sides, uh, all different religious uh, peoples understanding each other. Absolutely, JJ, you're right. It's about really, you know, sitting at the table and say, look, I respect you for what you are. And I not just respect you, but I accept you. That's the first thing. And then we talk on a symmetrical platform. So I'm not, you know, the boss of you and I'm trying to explain it to you or, or I'm not the colonial master and you're the subject. It's not an asymmetrical relationship. And once we have that respect, JG, I think that's very, very important because sometimes we tend to talk down at the other saying, oh, you know, I'm from this country or this culture and, you know, this. So that's a little bit of ego coming in. 
some of the work that I studied, JG, in this book, beautiful texts. Um, in fact, I'm referring to one scholar saint whose name is Shah Abdul Latif Bittai. And he was based in Pakistan some 300 years ago. And his book, which is a beautiful book, it's called the Shah Jorisalo, JG. It's all his stories are in the voice of the female author or the female protagonist. And Shakespeare and his story of Romeo and Juliet is inspired by these stories. So really these stories are about the spiritual journey. It's about inclusiveness. It's about acceptance. It's about, you know, really listening to the other person. What are they saying? And I'm respecting you and you're respecting me and therefore we can have this dialogue. So I'm not degrading my religion or myself or my faith, but strengthening it because that's how I begin to make a friend across boundaries. And it's so much richer. I mean, I've, JG, you know, I've been doing interfaith dialogue and the best thing I've come out with is this network of friends across the world from New York to uh, Indonesia to, you know, the Middle East, the wonderful, wonderful people, Europe, all across the world, but very warm, very positive people who I really see as my interfaith family. So I think it's, it's for me, it's been a, a wonderful journey. I want to delve more into the book, uh, Gems and Jewels specifically, but I also wanted to ask you, uh, since I had it here in my notes, uh, the issue of Islamophobia, especially since 9-11, it, it's interesting to me, you know, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I do think attitudes um, about Muslims in the non-Muslim world are, are really changing in the U.S. I, I think young people uh, don't buy into a, a lot of the hateful rhetoric that maybe I saw growing up um, during the, the war on terror years. Uh, but do you think that's the case or are there still obstacles that uh, are going to be very big hurdles to overcome? Well, uh, JG 9-11 was uh, the worst thing that could happen, not just to the people who passed away, sadly, but also to the Muslim community as a whole, as a world community, and also to humanity, because it's, it's an extreme injustice to blame an entire group of people for something one person did or didn't do. We don't know who did it. You know, we, we're pointing fingers to an entire community where it's this one incident here. So a boy, for example, in London or a boy in growing up in a school in Indonesia may have got nothing to do with it. He may, may not know anything about the politics that took place there, but he is shouldering the blame because the media day and night says terrorism, terrorism, ter you know, that becomes a sort of a big demonization. So that affected a lot of people. And I know a lot of the younger generation uh, in the Muslim community, that it's caused a lot of anxiety, a lot of problems. And as a world community, we really don't want to do that. You know, we want to help heal, like the chief rabbi, uh, Lord Jonathan Sachs, who sadly passed away during COVID. Uh, he wrote a book about healing a fractured world. And we have a choice, JG. We can either, you know, constantly blame each other and increase tension and you know, support that violence or killing and all. And both 
parties from both sides are crazy. You know, they have you have crazy enough people to want war and to want um, negativity. But you're absolutely right that the younger generation today, because of not just the television, not just the newspapers, but other means of social media, much more aware. Number one, number two, there are many more immigrants coming into the West. So there's much more personal contact. And therefore things are not as they, you know, you may have heard that, oh, Islam is equal to this ABC. But when you meet a Muslim, you say, hey, he's so hospitable, he's kind, he can be my friend. And so that breaks down that stereotype, those stereotypes. But I think a great deal of damage was caused. Islamophobia is a terrible thing, as is any other phobia of any other religion, uh, as is anti-Semitism and all the other hate of any other community. And it's really got to be tackled and uh, looked at. And I think it still, JG, has a lot of implications on the youth today. And it's something that schools need to look into, something universities need to look into in order to counter any kind of hate. So getting into gems and jewels uh, specifically, this is about the religions of, of Pakistan. And I think it's interesting because, you know, there is this media portrayal at times, I think of Pakistan as you know, rigid, uh, you know, having at times a, a sort of militant exclusivism and uh, even extremism. Uh, so could you talk about that narrative and how you sort of came to try to counter it with this book? I mean, essentially, I'm saying, what is the origin of uh, Gems and Jewels, the religions of Pakistan? Yes, you're right, JG. We have, unfortunately, and I've written about this in the Huffington Post, we do have images of people. We have images of nations. We have images or stereotypes of the other. And I think those are not always fair because, you know, you take a nation and you say, oh, this is the, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, these are A, B, C. So you're constantly labeling people and communities. Um, and as for someone who has grown up or is originally or was born in Pakistan, I can tell you that there is, every time I go back, there's so much variety. There's so many faith communities, there's so many ethnic communities, there's so many languages. There's such a variety in landscape, there are mountains, there are rivers, there are uh, deserts, there's absolutely fantastic variety of, you know, what, what nature has to offer and what culture has to offer. So for this book, Gems and Jewels, um, a member of the minorities community from the Parsi faith, uh, Mr. Isfanyar Bhandara, who's an MNA for minorities, he came up to me and he said, you know, I want to write a book on the religious communities. And I said, that's a fantastic idea because I'd already done a little book for another project funded by USIP. So, and that was at FC College, at Foreman Christian College. So I said, this would be an excellent follow-up. And therefore, JG, we began this book uh, and I got about seven photographers. So we've got lovely pictures. And if you flip through the book, you'll see lovely pictures for, of the cathedral in Karachi that's a fantastic Christian community there. Then you'll see the Buddhist community in interior Sindh. You'll see the Jains. You'll see the Parsis, the Baha'is. 
the Muslim community, you'll see the Kalasha in the north. So you have such a variety of people and voices and perspectives that that is the reality of our world. And we really have to see that reality because I too, JG, had my stereotypes and my shortcomings. And when I began this project, you know, because in our, because it's a Muslim dominated country, so you see the minorities, you have these stereotypes that people say, oh, so-and-so is a fire worshiper, so-and-so is a statue, but that's all wrong. You know, when you go and meet the people, you see that they're such intelligent, such sophisticated and complex people. And suddenly I came across my own stereotypes. I said, hey, this is, uh, you know, I was, I've been told ABC about these communities, but in reality, I meet people like um, uh, Perrin and Rathi, two Parsi ladies who are very sophisticated, JG. One is in based in Lahore and one was based in India, sadly. And they were divided simply by this line, the partition between India and Pakistan. And they're very sophisticated la ladies. For example, Perrin is a teacher at Kanade Colleges, one of the women's colleges in Lahore in Pakistan. And she's very sophisticated. She's teaching Bernard Shaw and Shakespeare. And one of the amphitheaters is named after her. And she's taught generations of women. And, you know, so, so you had such a variety of people. And yet we don't normally encounter them. But through this book, it's a little glimpse of, you know, hearing their voices, hearing their perspectives and saying hi and meeting these people who are from different communities. So it really breaks down our uh, ignorance and helps us encounter and be befriend the other. If you could, there's a, a few things I wanted to unpack there. Um, just for my listeners, you mentioned these sort of stereotypes um, about fire worshipers. Could you explain that more for listeners that may not be familiar with what that may mean? And also I think that would tie into um, who are the, the Parsis? That's, um, they're Zoroastrian in their faith, yes. right? Could you yes. discuss that? Yes, of course. So the Zoroastrians um, are a faith community, a very small faith community who originated in Iran. And they really believe in one God, Ahura Mazda, and they have a sacred text. And their whole religion is based on doing good deeds and good acts and good thoughts. So it's a very sophisticated religion, but unfortunately, because they are a minority religion and because they're not able to voice or express themselves and they have some sort of fire at the temple, which is a symbol for life and creativity and warmth and, uh, you know, all the things that many other faiths think about. When people see them from afar and don't understand them, then they say they are worshipping the fire but the fire is a symbol. It's not the fire itself that is being worshiped. It's a symbol for something else. And therefore in many of the religions, this is the case. So what I'm saying is that through this book and through this journey, I was able to encounter those um, communities, really engage with them, really see from their perspective and see with empathy. And then also challenge my own uh, understanding and the wider society's understanding of what they are. Because remember, if um, within a wider Muslim context, JG, if 
they considered, uh, for example, the Parsi communities considered fire worshippers, then they're seen as the other, they're more distant. Whereas if they're seen as believers of one God, then they're seen as closer. So they were really being pushed aside in perception. And through this work, I was able to see that they are not so far as we thought they were. Could you talk about some of the other different religions of Pakistan? I, I mean, there is, uh, you can find Buddhism, uh, Sufism. Um, I believe there's even um, Hindu minorities. Could you talk a, a little bit about the ones that really stood out for you that, that you think my listeners uh, could learn something about from this conversation? Yes, sure. So, uh, JG, uh, I began the book reversing the order. So really giving that sense of respect and love to the community that was smallest in number. So I started with the Jains. Um, then because we went to visit one of these beautiful temples far out in interior Sindh, and um, there weren't too many James, Jains that I encountered, but I saw a beautiful temple. We've got gorgeous pictures of the temple. Uh, then I met the Parsi community. I met their leaders. We, I went to their temples. I met the two ladies I talked about, Rathi and Perrin, who were educationists. I went to the Baha'i community in Pakistan. Again, a very sophisticated community. They believe in nine religions of the world and they try to unite people and talk about uh, you know, that we are all one tree and we are all different branches. So we're different perspectives, but we have the same root. Uh, then I uh, encountered the Buddhist community, which has deep roots in Pakistan. So uh, the Buddhist community had an old center in Pakistan called Taxila. And Taxila is sort of in the north. This was about a thousand years ago. This was one of the oldest universities of that area. It was like the Harvard, the Oxford, Oxford and Cambridge of that area. So people would come from far and wide. And one of the branches of Buddhism was born there and branched out from there. And so they had so much love and respect for knowledge that professors would not take a pay and salary because their reward was not the money, but the reward was in teaching and in um, you know being the teacher. So the status was there. And so there was so much respect for learning and knowledge. And that's, that's Taxila in uh, the North. But presently, uh, and even in Swat, in Swat where my mother comes from, that area, uh, also has um, a whole history of Buddhist um, Buddhist civilization. Um, and presently, there was a big Buddhist community in Sindh who I interviewed and who were very patriotic, JG, so very impressive people. Um, very, very poor, but very impressive and very passionate um, and so there were, again, their words are in the book, their stories are in the book. Um, then I met the Sikh community. The Sikh, now, as you know, JG, Sikhism was born in Pakistan. Um, and Nankana Sahib, where Baba Guru Nanak was born, is in Pakistan. So that Pakistan, Sikhs say, is as sacred for the Sikhs 
as Makkah is for Muslims or, you know, uh, a holy place is for any other faith. So uh, that is a very central uh, place for Sikhs. Uh, and you have lovely stories about Baba Guru Nanak. One of my favorite JG is when the founding father of Sikhism, um, his name is Baba Guru Nanak. He's about 17 years old. His father gives him some money and says, son, go and do some business and multiply this money by many fold. So when you come back, I want you to be a billionaire and I want you to come back in your, you know, Ferrari of the time and all. But when Baba Guru Nanak went out, he saw some starving people on the road and on the street, and he bought some food and gave it to them. And when he came back to his dad, he said, Dad, I did the true business of life. I gave these very poor people some money and some food. And the father got really angry at him and said, you know, what have you done? I, I told you to become this rich businessman, and but you've uh, invested your money in this place. So he said, no, but that's the true business of life. And therefore, JG, there is a temple, a Gurdwara, which is a Sikh temple. It's called the true business of life, Sacha Soda temple in that area. And so they're lovely stories. Then you have uh, we went to Interior Sindh, where we met a lot of Hindus and some of the oldest uh, monuments and temples are based both there and at Katas Raj, which is a um, sort of lovely uh, collection of water. And there's some old temples there, JG. So you have the Buddhist temples, you've got Hindu temples, and you've got a Muslim um, uh, area of scholarship where one of the oldest, you know, Ibn, Ibn al-Biruni came there and wrote Kitab al-Hind, one of the oldest books on uh, South Asian India at that time. Um, and so you have that lovely building and right at the base, there's green water. And according to one of the myths, one of the gods cried and from his tear, this water was formed. So that's, um, you have lovely stories. And then with the Christian faith, I met, I went up again to Karachi uh, and um, went on Christmas day to St. Patrick's Cathedral. Now the founding father, Kaideyazam Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who was a very sophisticated, educated person uh, and a lawyer. He too was very passionate about human rights and minorities' rights. So he too had gone on Christmas day to these uh, churches in Northern Pakistan, in sorry, in Karachi. And so uh, it was really in his footsteps and that was really inspiring. So in the cathedral, I also saw Pope Francis's picture and I know he's very keen on brotherhood across faiths. So he too is another hero. So really the book was celebrating and focusing on all the heroes. Then last, um, JG, we have a whole section on uh, Islam and particularly on all the Sufi saints. These are the saints and scholars who wrote beautiful books like the Kashaful Majub, which is a lovely book on, you know, not going for power or being greedy about human, you know, the materialism, etc. but looking at what's, you know, important and genuine. And then you've got the Shahjo Risalo, which is another beautiful book that I mentioned. It's written by Shah Abdul Latif Bitai. And those are beautiful love stories on the spiritual path. So these now, JG, imagine people down on the street, uh, 
in the villages, for them, you know, they're not talking about sophisticated, sophisticated ideas. They're not going to discuss Plato and um, Aristotle and all these people or science and philosophy because their village, you know, they are the, living on the village level. So they have their uh, farms and their human relations. So for them, stories would be appealing. So folklore, folk stories, and therefore Shah Abdul Latif Betai writes all these beautiful stories, really bringing out the gist of the Bible and the Quran and the holy texts of all the faiths and being really inclusive and empathetic and really going to the heart of humanity. So how do we connect as human beings? How do we cross those boundaries and respect each other and understand each other and really give each other voice and space, whether you're a woman or a man, because he also crosses gender. And that's what I really respect about his work. But he's not unique, JG, because there's Waris Shah who wrote He Ranja. That's another love story. And again, the woman is the masculine one. She's the one in public. She's the one who's vocal. She's the one who's speaking, whereas the hero is more effeminate, he's more, you know, back, he's more respectful, etc. So it's very interesting, these concepts that we have. And yet, on the other hand, JG, like you pointed out, you have all these stereotypes of Pakistan and other countries, and, you know, we are, we are really grand, and so-and-so is really bad. And, you know, these are something we've got to get over with, really, in order to respect each other, because education, at the end of the day, has got to be about respect. It's got to be about including everybody at the table. You have such a variety in the world. I, I wanted to um, delve into, uh, since we were talking about Sufism a bit there, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people um, that maybe are completely unfamiliar with uh, the Islamic world don't realize that there's, you know, sort of multiple multiple variations on, on Islam, like Sufism. Could you speak to that a little bit for listeners who may not be as aware of that? that, that because I think there's people that think Islam is uh, monolithic when it really, th there's a lot of variation within the faith. Now, that's a really good point, JG. I think part of the problem is how the media presents communities to each other. So everybody on the other side says, hey, I'm really, you know, sort of my world is really good and, you know, I can understand it, but I don't really understand those people out there. So what the picture we're left with is a, it's a monolith. You know, here you have a whole block and they think in this way, they dress in a certain way. That's not really true. It's just like uh, JG, let's say you have brothers and sisters or you have four siblings or you know one is really naughty one is really funny one is really you know they're so different but they're also different in how they look and think and therefore of course if you have you know seven I don't know how many uh, um, you know billions of people then uh, you are going to inevitably have different perspectives now even Sufi Islam sometimes is romanticized by the west because they say, hey, these are the good guys, these are softer, they're more empathetic. But in reality, JG, all Muslims look to the Abrahamic concept of both the, um, you know, the same Abrahamic God, who is at the core of all the faiths and all the beliefs. 
And his whole philosophy or his stress is on justice, on doing righteousness to other people. So you treat others the way you want to be treated. You're kind to others. You're, you're respectful. You're um, thinking of the widows, of the orphans, of the poor. And you're doing good deeds along with belief in a system that is based on a sense of justice. So God, I think, is very particular in all the Abrahamic faiths. And so Sufism is not really out, outside Islam and an alien religion, which is the good guys. But these two are part of the very same narrative, which is inspired by the same prophets, prophet and prophets who are inspired by the beloved, the beloved God who is based and his one of his names is the beloved. So the whole concept of love, the whole concept of, you know, acceptance, JG, is something very positive. So you only, you only love someone who you see as yourself, who you see as part of your own narrative. And therefore, you know, that string of love comes through. And again, as I said, it's all because the word Suf, Sufi is based on wool. And the concept of Sufism came from the cloak of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And his life was very simple. It was countering all the oppression, all the, um, you know, women weren't given rights. Women weren't allowed to inherit. Sometimes they were buried alive. This was tribal Arabia. So this was got nothing to do with Islam. It had got nothing to do with the Abrahamic concepts. But these, this was very tribal. These were tribal concepts. And he was, again, challenging them because he was talking from that perspective of, uh, you know, justice. How do we see uh, people? How do we bring women in? How do we give them rights? And that's what he did. He gave them rights. Uh, he talked to other faith communities, he brought them in. So the whole point was to be inclusive and to work towards justice. So again, Sufism, whether it's Sufism or whether it's any other uh, faith community uh, within the Abrahamic, it's again, again and again stressing towards the same concepts of love and respect and uh, worship. Um, worship again is a, is a wider word. It, it's not only about saying your prayers, but it's about seeking knowledge. It's about respecting others. It's about, you know, reaching out. It's about appreciating the ecology, about, you know, planting that seed, planting the tree, even if the world is about to end tomorrow. That concept is just very positive, that, that concept. And that's what we have to uh, understand and explore. If you could, could you talk a little bit as well about, uh, since you covered Hindu communities in your book. I think that we're in an interesting time right now because when we look at India, that there are sort of these Hindu nationalist elements that I, that I think can be very Islamophobic. And I think it's important that we uh, sort of overcome those prejudices while not becoming the sort of mirror image of that, um, like Hindu phobic. So uh, how can we sort of create unity between Muslims and Hindus, and what was your experience like covering the Hindu community in Pakistan? That's a really good question, JG. Um, at the moment, we hear a lot of reports and a lot of statistics and 
people have come back from India saying, you know, the conditions are ripe for genocide. Um, people are being lynched. Women are not being allowed to, um, you know, cover or not cover. That's their own decision. But, you know, when, when the state starts becoming an oppressor, that's very, very sad and unfortunate. So exactly, you know, of course, that allows for um, a lot of people not to understand the Hindu faith because suddenly you say, hey, these people are you know, doing A and therefore it must be equal to B. But when I began to read some of the Hindu texts, uh, they were all talking about peace, 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 you know, constantly about peace, about understanding. And therefore even the concept within the Hindu faith, faith for example, um, Ram, the, the concept of the Lord Ram is very just. He's always fighting for justice and goodness. But the evil guy is Ravana. Ravana is the fellow who is um, always doing the wrong and he's um, kidnapping Ram's wife. And, you know, so again, that's the human struggle between the good and the evil. And I think in this battle, the political battle, when we see um, when we see Hindu boys shouting at young Muslim girls and not allowing them to pass by streets or young, uh, for old men to be lynched. When you see that, then you it builds up question mark in your mind and you say, why is this happening? It shouldn't be happening in this modern day and age when we're talking about respect for other people, respect for other communities. But if we go back again through your channel, through uh, knowledge, if we go back to the Hindu texts and even remind those people that yes, in every faith that there are extremists, but your own texts, if you go back to your texts, like one of the my interviewees told me this, he said, any person who follows their own uh, religion and goes back to their sacred texts, then they talk about justice and peace and respect. So I think that's what needs to happen. When I went to Interior Sindh, I spoke to the in, uh, some of the Hindu community and they said that the pressure of sometimes India, Pakistan fighting or the Hindus oppressing Muslims in India, that pressure falls on them. So usually, you know, when, you, when you're a Hindu minority in Pakistan, the wider majority will say that, oh, you know, your people over there are hurting our people and take out their anger on them. Now that's very unfair because as I said, they've got nothing to do with that community. But again, people tend to lump communities in one, which is a very black and white way of looking at the world. And it's an unjust way, it's not the right way. So again, it's about hearing individual stories and perspectives and not hating other people, JG, just simply because they belong to a community. Just It's just completely illogical. Think of anyone. They happen to be born in a certain faith community. That doesn't mean they're evil, they're planning, they're, you know, equal to AB and let's eliminate them or destroy them. That's, you know, you can't do that. Think of yourself in, in their place or step in their shoes. Be empathetic, I would say, for your listeners. Please be, um, I mean, your listeners are probably very educated, very respectful, good people. But um, I would say to the people who hate or to pick up those sticks and to be mean to some, another community or even to think of the concepts of genocide, I would really say, you know, step back and 
thing that could be you. It could be in reverse, just reverse the roles. I mean, that's not really worth it. That's not what humanity is about. And if you reverse hate into love, then love is something so positive Then you begin to really give space to the other. Let them live, let live yourself. But why say, you know, let's start disrespecting people or excluding them or taking away their rights or their citizenship or their manner of dress or, you know, limiting their rights because then you're really frustrating communities and you yourself are doing an injustice. So I think that's something that's really, really sad for me when I, because I worked recently, JG, with the United Nations Office on Genocide Prevention and the Responsibility to Protect. So we did one of the sessions in Pakistan and involved about 200 universities who plugged in. And we talked about the concept of soft speech as opposed to hate speech. And so I thought that was a very useful session. We also had minorities, some of the people from this book. Uh, but again, things like that need to happen in all the countries, in India, in Afghanistan, in all the countries in the world. And I think the UN is trying. They're a very small group. They're a goodwilled group, but they are trying with limited resources. What is a soft speech as opposed to hate speech? I haven't heard that term before. That's a really good question, JG. So the United Nations had a concept of countering um, hate speech, hate speech, which is, you know, because they've done studies which show that hate speech um, is the precursor of genocide. So when you say, okay, this community is awful, they're terrible, they're, you know, you, you could label them as terrorists or bad or whatever, and then the next step is genocide, because then you justify killing a community because you've identified them as bad. So that is hate speech. That's the United Nation uh, aim to counter hate speech because they don't want communities to be persecuted and to be victims of genocide. But soft speech, JG, is something that's encouraged by, for example, when I was doing work, I studied both the Quran, the Quran, for example, and the Bible and the, you know, all the religious communities encourage um, a kinder speech because even a smile is charity. It's a form of worship. Soft speech is there's a specific verse in the Quran which says that, you know, loud voice is equal to an, you know, unruly, crude, crude form of speech that's discouraged. But soft speech is something that is encouraged and something that is loved and celebrated. So we were trying to introduce the soft speech from a local framework within a local framework uh, to counter that hate speech concept. So the very last question here, I know you've stayed a little bit over, and it, th this is a sort of complex one, but I think that we're in a very turbulent moment and a lot of people I think are very... I know a lot of people that feel inclined towards pessimism right now, not just because of uh, everything that we've been through with COVID, but I know a lot of people, even people who've you know done well for themselves in some ways with their education, even a lot of people I know like that are, are struggling right now. And I think also uh, people are seeing what's happening with uh, Ukraine. And it just seems like the inclination towards pessimism can be very strong because of current events. So 
how, how do you think we can overcome the sort of temptation of a, a pessimistic sort of inclination? And uh, do you have any examples from the book of your experiences that maybe gave you hope? So JG, you're absolutely right. This is a very difficult moment for all of humanity, but especially for people who are young, because they'd really want to see a good world, a world where they can prosper, where they have opportunities, where they have jobs, where you know global warming is not affecting them, et cetera. And yet you had COVID, then you had war after the other, you had genocides. You hear about the Rohingya, you hear about the Uyghurs, you hear about the, you know, Kashmiris. There's so many. It goes on and on and on. Syrians, Iraq. And it just the list goes on and on until you come to Ukraine. And when you see mothers and children and, you know, young men and in awful conditions in one little suitcase and looking harassed and crying. And so many times I've cried and really felt really, really upset because I do very much care for humanity as a mother, as a woman. I do care very much for humanity. And my aim is, you know, and my wish and prayers for the world is that we see a more peaceful world. But in fact, we're, we're seeing a world that is in so much more turmoil and we don't know what's around the corner, JG, because you have all these countries with uh, nuclear weapons and you have all these crazy leaders who have ambitions and sometimes put up walls and sometimes put up hate speech and sometimes reject their own communities. You know, they say, oh, you're not allowed citizenship, you're rejected and you can't dress your way, you can't believe your way. So they're really rejecting themselves. This is them. It's not... It's not the other, it's them. And so when you see this, JG, as a scholar, as a mother, as I said, it's really, really discouraging. And on top of that, I, as I said, had cancer. And I was dealing with that with chemotherapy. I have got little children. So I was, they were, you know, had that fear of um, being abandoned by their mother. So there were multiple layers of fear that I was dealing with. But as I said, um, reading this book again, editing it, you know, also believing in a higher power, a power who is based in the concept of love and respect for humanity. Just that simple fact that, you know, you can love the human family, love the human family. As Jesus said, you know, turn the other cheek, love, love your neighbor. And I know that that's a really ideal concept, but it's a beautiful concept to love and to respect and to empathize and to include. If we could do that, that would really give us hope. And the Prophet Muhammad said a beautiful thing. He said, even if you know that the world is ending tomorrow, take that little seed and plant it. Because you never know, you know, there may be a few more days or there may be, you know, there may be a time may be different. God's time is different to human time. And so um, there is hope. And that hope in humanity is something that is very positive and strong and really allows us to survive. Otherwise, we would be so upset because when you see all those children, like you said, uh, with their backpacks, when you see there was a little seven-year-old boy, JG, who crossed the border from Ukraine. And he came all alone. His name was Hassan. He came all alone. His parents had the courage to send him across. And you see him with his little backpack, a little hat in the cold, I think it cold months. 
you just feel so upset and so sorry. But then they're good people. They're good people across the border who wanted to embrace and accept him. And I think that's the spirit of humanity that, that I have hope when I look at. You know, the good people, and I know there are a lot of good people in the West and in the East. And when I see that spirit of humanity, that's what really gives me hope. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Amina Hoti, for coming on Parallax Views. And I want to give you a chance to uh, let my listeners know how they can get a hold of the book. And also, I, I know I said last question, but I had actually um, thought of this at the last minute. I was wondering if you could comment on what do you think the key misunderstanding uh, many, especially in the United States, may have about Pakistan? Because I feel like uh, th there are some negative attitudes and, and stereotypes that some people in America have specifically about Pakistan. Uh, you know, I've heard people say, oh, uh, Pakistan, they just support the, the Taliban. And, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings and misconceptions that people have about Pakistan. And I was wondering, what do you think the, the biggest uh, misconception may be? Or what would you want my listeners to understand about Pakistan if they have any um, negative views that they may need to shed? Well, you're absolutely right, Gigi, that there are uh, very, very negative stereotypes. And as I said, they come from the media because the media really shows you one glimpse and sometimes, uh, you know, shows like Homeland and all these uh, television shows that are being made about a country have no reality. They have no link to reality. And they really create this demonized, this stereotype perspective of Pakistan, for example. Uh, and I don't know what's the benefit of showing another country in such a negative way, because you have 200 million people, you have women, you have children, you have kids who want to, you know, seek education. Uh, you have young, brave kids like Malala Yousafzai, you have the Nobel Peace Prize winner, who was Abdul Salam, you have some amazing artists, you know, you've got fantastic designers, and there's just a wonderful array of people. So really, rather than saying, hey, here's a whole country, Let's demonize them. Why not say, hey, here's a whole country. Let's discover their riches, you know, their ethnic differences, their cultural uh, richness, their, all these religious communities. How, what can we gain by become, what, how can we become richer by understanding those countries? For example, a rich country like Pakistan has got so much to offer. And the vast majority of the population in Pakistan is the youth. So I think it's about 65% plus are young in Pakistan. So again, this is, you know, the, this youth population are again, very intelligent, just simply because they belong to Pakistan doesn't mean they're enemies of India or any other country, because in the ideal, these two countries should be friends. And I would love them to be friends with their neighbors. And that's what, you know, where we should be going as a world community to understand each other, to reach out, to benefit from each other and to hold each other's hand and take each other forward, but not use that hand to, you know, so fight with each other. So uh, there's a lot to learn, JG. And I think to start with uh, two things, one, you could get a hold of this book, 
Uh, number two, you could um, visit the country because you will be amazed if you really want to blow up those stereotypes that you have, visit the country and you may fall in love with the country and really appreciate um, all that area is rich. You know, the whole region is rich. All the neighboring countries, I would say, are, have fantastic history to offer. Um, and if I could go as a, as a student with a backpack, I would go to, uh, again, explore Pakistan, India. That whole region is just fantastic, only if it was politically stable. Well, thank you again, Dr. Amuna Hoti, author of Gems and Jewels, the Religions of Pakistan. Thank you, JG, for your time and for the voice on your platform. Thank you for the work you do. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Dr. Amina Hoti, author of Gems and Jewels, The Religions of Pakistan, and Dr. Kara Cooney, author of The Good Kings, Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt and the Modern World. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me financially at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. You can make a monthly donation of $1, $5, $10, $15, or $100. Any amount will help. It is your financial support that helps to keep this show going. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.